Hi guys, welcome back to this week's episode of Let's Chat Ethics. I'm your co-host Oriana. And I'm your other co-host Amanda. And today we are joined by Lofred Madhu. We're really excited to have you, Lofred. He's the Director of Strategy at True Era. So I just wanted to hand over to you to just do a short introduction about yourself and your background. So hello everyone, my name is, as you said, Lofred Madhu. I've, uh, I've been in the AI governing space for the last eight years or so. Uh, I started off uh, after my master's degree in data science and philosophy at the University of Oxford. I worked for French governments at uh, an entity called the French Digital Council. We are advising the French governments on tech policy, specifically AI governance. And then I worked at the World Economic Forum, where I did pretty much the same thing. Uh, advised various governments, but also businesses on how to implement the right processes and tools to ensure responsible use of AI. And then I joined, I joined Trera around 18 months ago, which is a startup based in California that provides software to test, debug, and monitor machine learning models. So still in the trust for the AI space, but now I'm directing the strategy and, and their um, marketing motion in Europe. Nice, nice, great. Yeah, I think this is something we just ask all of our guests, because uh, responsible AI is a fairly, um, well, it's been around for a while, but it's still a new phenomenon for a lot of people working across um, or industry. So what does responsible AI mean to you and to the work that you do um, at True Era? I guess the easiest way to think about this is thinking about all the great things that you can do with AI. So AI, you know, brings a lot of opportunities across industries and you're thinking about how it's going to transform insurance or financial services or for more personalized care, you name it, right? So we see all these marvelous things, uh, all these marvelous opportunities brought by AI but also comes with some, some of risks. And the all responsible AI space is about mitigating the risks associated with AI. And the way I like to think about this is, is, is the following is to say, regardless, think about a specific use case within where you want to use AI and think about the risks related to that specific case. How do you make sure that the behavior of your model is consistent with a set of requirements, guidelines, expectations, that's really the thinking. It's really about aligning the behavior of a model with some sort of expectations. That That's what responsible AI for me. Okay, that's a really nice, um, I think, explanation, kind of a little bit positive of all the like opportunities, because I think a lot of the time we think of, um, I don't know, the thought of responsible AI to me often evokes the negative things, yeah, the, the risks and the, the dangers. So I think it's really nice to think about it in terms of, yeah, like thinking of the great opportunities and trying to, um, mitigate the, the risks. And is there a particular area of um, responsible AI that you're particularly passionate about, I guess, or particularly interested in? I would say that at, the short answer is, is no, because I think that every industry is, is, is interesting and depending on the, on the use case, I'm just really curious. I'm a curious person, so it really depends on what the, what the use case that ends. But in my company, we most we work mostly with financial services uh, companies, but also retail and tech. That that's where most of our focus, because both of our executive uh, executives' background, but also our software capabilities at the moment. So these are the main industries for us. But I'm looking at this across across industries. Yeah, no, I think that that makes sense. I think there's such a um, such a need for it across industries, and I know financial services is one that. A lot of people are focused on due to the fact that they're used to being regulated a bit more and they've already got a lot of um, these models in production. 
Um, I'm just interested to understand um, when we look at response by AI, uh, a lot of time people speak about fairness and uh, that's one of the, the topics that sometimes people don't quite understand. What do you understand by fairness or what does it mean it, at True Error and how, does, how do you work on that in responsible AI? This one is this one is a very interesting this is a very interesting question because you think about fairness first this is rather like um, either a philosophical or legal term and the whole thinking is how does it play out in a computer science context because that's something you know before I just your question let's step back a bit here why people care about fairness is because we care about justice put simply right we want to get to the kind of you know one-on-one mm -hmm. political philosophy but let's say that we all aspire to a more fair and equal and just society great. Now that AI is being used in so many decision-making processes that affects people's life chances, we're starting with financial services. Now we know that some AI models are used for credit decisions, and we know that the ability to get a mortgage is a very, very important uh, step in your life to establish your family and, and, and so forth, right? So that's a very consequential decision. If that decision is supported in, or powered by AI, you want to make sure that whatever recommendation or decision is being made, this one is fair. And here, fear I mean, it's fair here means haven't haven't been unjustly denied access to uh, to that loan. So I give you a very specific example because all fairness decision is not that much about decision being made by algorithms because again, all decisions are biased in a way because you have criteria, you are discriminating to find the right in that case, you know, the right uh, borrowers. What matters is. Is that fair or unfair bias? And going back to your point, what people care about is unfair decision, meaning I've been treated unjustly because of specific, you know, uh, irrelevant parts of my identity, either my race, my gender, or whatever the case may be. And I want to make sure that this is not the case, right? Actuera, and then you're thinking, well, how do you prevent this? So you have a first level of discussion, which is really legal, philosophical. And then you have a piece of software, which is basically just math, right? So the real question is, how do you translate that gap between that legal expectation and the software implications? Again, software is just math, right? So one way to think about this is you need to have some kind of thresholds and comparison. You should have to have some thinking around what groups are you comparing uh, together? And this is really important. Sometimes it's really obvious, you know, female versus male, you know, different races, and this one gets, even races gets really tricky, right? How do you segment society, right? You know, we can have all kinds of, you know, backgrounds, and it's really hard sometimes to segment. My point to you is that Chira helps you quantify the phenomenon, but has no say on the threshold of the criteria that you use for this. And that's really important. That's not our mandate. I really want to insist on this one. We're not there to decide what is fair and unfair. What we can do and usually, frankly, regulators or legislators explain or the court are there, have the mandate to actually decide what is fair or not. What I can help you do is quantify the phenomenon. So put very simply, I can literally, um, can literally analyze rent fairness tests, perform fairness tests, sorry, where we can analyze how the model behaves on different segments of your customer base. And if we observe any discrepancies, we can then say, well, that discrepancy is significant, like 20%, 25%. And that's on you, who you hear, meaning like the clients, the customer, the company, to make the call, but to give them the tools to quantify and then debug the model so that it behaves according to their expectation. That very case, 
that it is fair across all segments of appropriation. So it's kind of a long explanation, but I think it is required in that context. I think that's really nice. Um, I was at um, a workshop this like last week, and uh, one of the attendees, like the first question she asked me was like, "What's your definition of bias?" And I was like, "Well, I guess like unfair, like uh, actually it's hard to define." But I think you, you did a really nice job of like, yeah, that sort of unfair um, differences. Because yeah, maybe you, there are some differences that are fair when we're talking about um, justice. Course. So I think it's really think, nice. Yeah, on that point, it's very important. You have a set of stakeholders who have the exclusive mandate to define what is fair or not fair. And that's really important. Usually you have regulations, you have, uh, you know, legal, um, legal cases um, and so forth, right? Like discriminatory law has been around for, for decades. And that's kind of set the context for that discussion. And within this one, when the model is in production or even before, we can actually quantify its, its, its behavior across different segments and then make the call and address these biases. But very important, this is a very contextual discussion. There's no such thing as bias in the air. It is always bias comparing two different groups on a specific use case. And that's important to think this in context. Yeah, I think actually, yeah, that's a, <clears throat> also a really nice um, specification because I think, yeah, we, it seems always so vague and um, like hard to grasp and to think about it, yeah, being in a very specific use case and an application. Um, I think probably the in, in finance is very uh, concrete and numerical. So actually that's something that I thought was interesting since your background is in philosophy. Um, so I work a lot on um, ethics in AI and I collaborate often with uh, some philosophers, particularly uh, one that we've had on the podcast before. <laughs> um, and I think one thing that I always find interesting is trying to talk to them and understand the, the project. Um, then to try to fit the like philosophical aspects of things into the like very concrete and specific and numerical sort of quantify these things in in computer science and even trying to find the right uh, vocabulary and and to try to philosophize within the constraints of uh, of of computing and trying to apply those ideas to the the models that we've built. So in one of the projects we're working on is about emotion emotion detection and emotion ai and even that has particular biases so we're finding like differences in gender um so i guess i'm curious to know uh, how how you found the the transition i guess or how how much you feel that the your philosophy background informed <laughs> this i think philosophers are so good at finding the difficult things whereas i think us like I'm an engineer by training and I tend to oversimplify things and like, it's supposed to be imperfect because it's a model. <laughs> of course, of course, of course. Um, well, that's a really good question. Let me start by saying that philosophy has been far, by far the most important uh, subject I've studied, uh, the most impactful because I did data science, I did you know, uh, law and political science in undergrads. Philosophy is useful on a daily basis in my work. And let's go back to your question around fairness before. Ultimately, what philosophy helps me for here is thinking about how to frame the problem. And often, as you know, when you build a model, you run with all kinds of assumptions, you know, about the quality of your data set, about its representativity, um, about the very question you're trying to address, right? For instance, if you're thinking about using AI to find the best talents, you need to have an implicit definition of what that talent is about, right? Well, thinking is, well, you know, I'm going to analyze a bunch of resumes and I'm going to look at, you know, the profiles of the one who got, who got the jobs, the one that got rejected, and I'm optimizing, let's say, for 
your, the probability for this, these candidates to not only get the job, but get a promotion within the next two years or so. Let's say you're optimizing for this one. As we know, well, that are social constructs, right? It's not because you got the job or you got promoted. Yes, you, you need some qualities. But my point is, it, it's, not a, it's not an absolute and contactless, contextless measure of talent. There's no such thing, right? Again, what philosophy helps me in my work here is thinking about what is the problem we're trying to solve here? Do we have the right data? What are you optimizing for? What are the um, kind of like un unasked questions that needs to be addressed so we can ultimately tackle this problem? And AI is just a tool. So there are many valuable problems out there that are not really, um, I would say, um, well fitted for AI. And then sometimes you see people running around with AI as a tool and trying to, you know, basically force AI on anything and solve all problems, all kinds of problems with AI. And often they fail. <laughs> often they fail. Not because of AI, because just the wrong framing. Mm -hmm. And philosophy yeah. helps you see this far from distance. You, you feel that it won't work. Did you find the, I guess, the, the shift in the way of thinking or like, um, maybe not, not the shift, but sort of trying to combine the two of them of, uh, because, yeah, that I find very difficult sometimes and I yeah, it's led to many difficult conversations and yeah. frustrating mm. conversations yes and no. I think <laughs> that's a good question it is very hard if you are if you don't take into consideration the context again if things in the context if I go to my engineers and start like a one-on-one -on -one philosophy discussion about fairness and I'm going to lose them right yeah. it's completely relevant <laughs> to them who cares who generals who cares whatever all of that um, and, and they're right, like, at that very moment, it's not helpful for them to kind of go back that far, even though sometimes that run-up helps you make the jump. But that's, that's in the background in your mind. On the other end, it hasn't been that difficult because going back on what AI is all about, right, ultimately is building machines or, you know, softwares to reproduce human intelligence or at least, like, yeah, execute some kind of, like, intelligence to, uh, uh, to complete some tasks. And to do so, we need to have a clear understanding of what are the genuine capabilities of the systems. And that's where philosophy is really useful. Before we can properly discuss how to regulate AI, what we should be doing with it, we must come to terms with what AI can and cannot do. Part mm -hmm. of these capabilities are really assessed empirically, going back to what I said. If you're asking me to optimize, let's say for recruitment, I'm going to give you a concrete example. And it turns out that historically, in, in that very context of that industry or that company, there are very few women engineers who ever got the job. AI won't help you get more women in for a very simple reason that they were historically at a disadvantage in that industry. So when you're thinking about the data set and you think about how much knowledge there is, it is there is in that data set. Well, you have an, an intuition about what is that knowledge, what is the limitation of that knowledge, how far you can use it, and so forth. And philosophy is helpful from that perspective. So thinking about the capabilities. And then we go into the, when we go into the more like a moral aspects, you know, moral philosophy. And here we're thinking about is unfair bias, for instance. I started off by telling you that's not sure as Monday to decide what is fair or unfair. And that's really important because sometimes it's lost by engineers here. It's the making assumptions, they get data reinvent and they run with the word and, you know, use the, the, the model in prediction. Well, you have data subjects, you have a whole society, and you have also factors that should be involved in that process. And again, philosophy helps you thinking about what these actors, how do you get them involved, and so forth. Yeah, no, I think that's a really great 
explanation of it all. I think I wanted to touch on, you mentioned what AI can and can't do. And I think there's, at the moment anyway, there's a lot of coverage, especially in the media, about AI being sentient or the future, I guess, overdooming hype around AI. I feel like it's one thing that we can't not address because is I think that I'm just seeing it constantly at the moment in all the popular podcasts, <clears throat> all the popular mainstream news talking about the sentience of AI. So I'm just wondering when you look at what AI can and can't do, what what's your thoughts on this and how do you see this so, in your work? Disclaimer, I have a bias and this is my personal view, so it doesn't engage, obviously, my companies or any of my colleagues. That's really me, okay? Of course. Of course. Of course. <laughs> thinking about this, right? Well, I think it's a very dangerous line of thinking, uh, frankly. I think it's a bit distracting. Um, Seems so intelligent, right? Because it gives you these beautiful, fluent, well, I mean, I would not say beautiful, actually, <laughs> but very fluent, very human-seeming responses we've added like other anthropomorphic cues right they like dot 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 and it pretends like it's writing now it has the voice that sounds very natural mm -hmm. actually um and i yeah i guess it's this idea that something that seems so human right i mean language is such a human thing how could it not be intelligent how could it possibly know all the things that ChatGPT quote-unquote knows um and not actually be intelligent and it's it's so interesting because i think um, I don't know, to me, it's fascinating that because it's giving us so many cues of being as competent as a human. Exactly. Um, then, because I even read, um, right, like, so I live in I live in Italy, but I'm not Italian. And I always feel like people interact with me like I'm stupid because I don't speak Italian very well. Um, and then they think that ChatGPT is more intelligent than me <laughs> just because it's more fluent <laughs> in, in language, I guess. <laughs> Um, so like here, I always jokingly tell them like I'm foreign, not stupid. Thank you. Yeah, that's a really good example. I like that. I think I think I think there are, there are many reasons to this, but let's just focus on two of them. Uh, the first one is our own cultural bias. I'm thinking that language is really the the sense of human intelligence, and also it's a really Western bias, right? That thinking that. Language, because it seems to be a mental, a mental process, it captures like our cognitive processes. That's where intelligence is, right? And all the kind of mundane day-to-day -day interaction or when you write an article, people think that that's where like you really, you know, you need to focus a lot. So that's where you're more intelligent, let's say. And they will, you know, they wouldn't pay attention to most of 90% of daily interaction, which is not sitting down and writing an article, is going, going around doing, doing your life, right? Driving your car, speaking with your friends, and, and grocery stores, and arguing with your partner, whatever. All of that, which is like over 90% of your life, right? If you think about this, they would say, well, that's not, that's not intelligent. Oh, it's less, you know, it's less important than when you actually sit down and, and think carefully about something. I think that's a bias. That's a very strong cultural bias. So let's stop there. So it goes back to what I said, but like language is really the sense of intelligence. And if you're able to write, then for, so anyone that can, anything that can emulate that captures intelligence, huge bias. There's all history of why that bias exists. That's one thing. I guess the second thing as well is that um, building, on, building on that point around, uh, 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 around language is that really want to, uh, I can start. We are ascribing ChatGPT capabilities that we see in human beings. So we, there's a kind of anthropomorphism going on here, if I, if I may say, right? So the, 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 the way I like to think about this is 
we're so eager for that machine to speak that we rush to, you know, ascribe it consciousness, which is really, again, another kind of cultural bias, Western cultural bias, right? Uh, metaphor is like, imagine that you are to draw a line on the one extreme you have human beings, us, and one other extreme you have a machine. And the more, you know, ChatGPT over AI systems like, you know, develop and the more capabilities there are, the more we're thinking they're actually working toward us. But the, the truth is they're not working at all. And the truth is they have no sense of direction in the first place. What happens is that we are creating an envelope and we're some capable of performing various tasks. And that system is really all the sensors, all the data that we're producing, all the machines, all the environment that we're connecting that enables them to interact with us. And within that envelope, that's a term very common in machine in, uh, in computer science, but also in, uh, in engineering more broadly, this is only the space where your system can have different states interact with you. The more complex is that system, that envelope, the more it gives us the illusion that we are dealing with a kind of thinking being. But that's not the case, really. It's us moving toward the system. And this one is important. What I mean, we are the one adapting to the system. When you interact with GPT and make the mistakes, you're the one correcting the mistakes. You're the one giving the feedback. You're the one feeding the machine, right? You're the one adapting to it. Um, when you think about like, you know, autonomous vehicles, one of the challenges is interacting with human drivers. So what you end up doing is creating dedicated environments where you can control every, every possible state of, state of the world so that the machine can perform at its best. And you are constraining the human agents in that environment. So you see what I mean? We're the one adapting to them, so to speak, not the other way around. So I think this combination of like cultural bias around intelligence, our cognitive processes, and that illusion around the enveloping of a world where basically we're creating a world that is machine friendly, make us believe that we're working toward us, but really we're the only one working here. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, we are. No, I love that. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking when yeah, when we think about human intelligence, I think it's very I think it's really fascinating how yeah, obsessed we become about language, really. I think there's a whole history of language and actually equating intelligence to how we speak, um, how we act. And I think this obsession now with machines being able to, I guess, emulate human intelligence in a way through language is yeah, definitely you put it very nicely. We're, we're the ones adapting to them, not not really the other way around. And I, I wonder if you think, let's think about it more, just what effect do you think this is having on on the way we live our lives now differently to maybe how we did before? Because even just, yeah, I think there's there's been a history, even if you look at bias, um, equating, like we were saying, even Amanda, if you can't speak a language in a country, people might feel a certain way. There's also, when it comes to disability, if people aren't able to speak in a way that's perceived as intelligent, um, but we're putting this this real, um, you know, this real hierarchical um, status of almost um, the machine now, where it's it's been seen to be potentially more intelligent than than ourselves. Yeah, I think this can be risky because. It may lead us to dehumanize ourselves. Yeah, that's what I think. When we're like. seeing like when we're seeing like grandiose claims that ChatGPT passed X Y test and say, well, it passed the you know medical exam test, whatever, like in New York, whatever. It's really first of all, when you dive in, often that's not the case, right? These are usually you know the tests have been handpicked or there were biases in the training sets on which the system worked. 
was trained and ultimately that led to, 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 to that, that results. So these claims are over and over blown. Again, if you're diving often, that's not the case. Second thing is you don't really know how to assess AI performance. That's something I haven't like, I, I, I don't want, I don't have time to develop here, but really being able to perform more in benchmark data set doesn't anything about mastering any kind of capability or skills, nothing at all. <laughs> Skill, skills is not something that you can reduce into a benchmark, but let's get that out of the way. So why it is dehumanizing? Because when you start to, we start to judge ourselves based on the logic of, of machines or of the system specifically. And well, again, um, if you're thinking about the ability to find patterns very quickly at scale on, on very large data set, that's fantastic. It's a memorable, you know, marvelous tool, but we are not reckoning machines. Human beings are not, are not machines, really important. We're not there like the compute in our head, like in thousands of, thousands, uh, thousands of things in, 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 in a few seconds. We're not like that, like that at all. What make us, one thing that makes us so unique is our ability to exercise judgments. And judgment is not something that irreducible in the logic of machine. It's not called pure reckoning. It's not just like, you know, analyzing a lot of data really quickly and at scale and computing, sorry, really quickly at scale. It's not pure machine pattern recognition because otherwise you wouldn't be able to adapt so quickly, so well in your environment. And it, it kind of like distract us from what makes us so unique and also so fascinating. Our ability to innovate, adapt, change in front of like changing circumstances. And the more we are using AI in various environments, which is really about like, again, finding patterns and optimizing for the past, uh, most of these models that what we do, the more sometimes, the more I think we are cutting ourselves from a world world of possibilities or innovation where human intelligence, human thinking is not only valuable, but important to make breakthroughs. If you think about the use of AI, for instance, in science, now in math or, or, or over sciences, it's a great tool, but AI hasn't produced the next Einstein. It's really unlikely to do so. Because to be Einstein, it's not just like doing great what other people are doing by looking past papers. It's about being a, a world opener. It's about being able to see the limitation of existing paradigm and open up a perspective about another world, a completely different world. Physics was completely transformed before and after Einstein. There's nothing in the current paradigm whatsoever that cannot believe that this will happen with that current generation of AI systems. I'm not speculating about the future. I'm talking about now. So again, we should also celebrate the marvelous human mind and its ability to, uh, again, innovate and create new worlds altogether. And do you think, um, like, how, so because of these, I, I guess, a lot of the issues coming from, yeah, the maybe over-perceived intelligence, and I think a lot of people are guilty of that, um, and that's why we think that AI is going to change the world, that it can pass the bar exam, the medicine exam, what is it, the <laughs> medical board, whatever. <laughs> um, whatever tests. Yeah, to bring it back, I guess, to, um, to regulation, do you think AI in this regard, in this particular aspect, can we regulate AI in, in this aspect? I guess is what I mean. Yes, How can we yes. help that? And, 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 and this one, again, <laughs> this one, this where like, you know, AI, this why regulation is really important. Again, AI is a marvelous technology. Uh, we should use it in many instances, 
but we need to exercise, we need to cultivate our ability to exercise judgments on where and how to use AI. And this, and I mean, stress the point, exercise. That's a training, that's a collective discussion about where AI is fit for purpose, where it is not, under what circumstances, what requirements AI system should make. Because, because of all what, what we said so far, there are no real, no objective, no purpose, no direction. It's really up to us to decide how to use them under what context. And regulation here is really, really important, especially in these high-stake domains. We must make sure that AI is not only like not further increasing discrimination or inequality in specific areas, but actually purposely, you know, helping like um, offering more opportunities to groups that have been at disadvantage historically, right? But that's the decision that we should make ourselves. Speaking of regulation, there's an EU AI Act that is coming, uh, it's going to, should be adopted within this year or early next year, we'll see. And there, I think the interesting thing is, without diving into the details, it acknowledges the need to categorize AI systems based on their associated risks on different use cases and have appropriate requirements and guidelines based on these use cases. And I think that's a really right, that's the right way to think about, the, about this. It's, again, it's a marvelous opportunity but regulation is there to make sure that we use it like wisely. Um, and I think in, in that sense, that, that regulation is a good thing. Yeah, no, I, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, I, I agree with you. I think the regulation up to now, we've been trying to self-regulate, which we've seen hasn't worked in, in many instances, really, with all the big tech companies. Um, yeah, in, in my day-to-day work, we're looking heavily into the policy and regulations and how it's going to impact our customers, our business model, um, the use cases, the specific use cases we're working on in R&D. Uh, but one thing that keeps coming up time and time again is, is um, regulation really able to keep up with the innovation? And will it actually be able to give those sufficient guidelines? Because I know now we have the, the sandbox initiative from the EU, which I think is a great one. But where, where can we do better, do you think, to be able to to enable regulation whilst enabling innovation, but also being able to keep it at the pace, I think. that's Because that's one thing I know a lot of people are quite concerned about. Like, Yeah, but I think it's, for me, it's a wrong way to think about this. First of all, regulation doesn't stifle innovation. I mean, let's put it this way. There's a... Um, it's a big claim to say that by default, any type of regulation is going to stifle innovation. Actually, I would, I would say the contrary. I won't say that. There are many regulations that have, you know, actually further advanced the use of technology or its development for, for, for specific needs because that it builds trust ultimately. Yeah. And my point is that if you don't trust AI, ultimately, that's a real risk of shutting down the whole thing. Uh, being in the industry, a lot of people are talking about AI. The truth is a lot of companies are not using AI because they don't trust it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't trust its outcome, doesn't trust, and for good reasons, because the truth is many of these systems just don't work. Let's say, let's, yeah. let's say the truth <laughs> to people. <laughs> the error problems, forget the bias, like, but just the thing just doesn't work in many instances. And making sure that it works is itself a challenge. So going back to your point, I think lack of trust is going to limit the use of AI, not regulation. Mm-hmm. Now, can it be, can we have bad regulation? Of course, of course, this, this can be the case, right? That's why we need to think carefully about what should be in that regulation how it's going to be implemented, and also what are the 
resources that we give to regulators to actually implement these regulations, right? That's something I think overlooked. The legal piece, we can get it right. We can think carefully about this and I'm not really worried about this. I'm a bit more concerned about the you know, resources for regulators once the regulation is passed. That's I'm really concerned about um, because I think at, what I'm seeing from now, they, don't, they won't have enough resources or at least they need much more resources to do their work. So yeah, lack of trust instead of regulation, I think that's a real trust. Yeah. That's an interesting soundbite, no, <laughs> like um, point of view, I guess. I think I always hear more people really concerned about regulation, whereas I think, yeah, it's probably lack of trust. I was even reading a paper that, you know, even people that at the beginning really trust AI, if it makes one stupid mistake, then uh, you cannot really rely on it. And we have much higher standards of trust in AI, like, uh, with the example of drive, self-driving cars, right? Yeah. Once there was a first accident involving a self-driving car, now nobody wants of course, of self-driving course. cars, whereas like humans are much worse drivers than cars uh, than self-driving cars, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And just on, just building on your point, uh, when they make mistakes, obviously there's you know it leads to a decrease of trust, but also the all kind of you know over hype doesn't help either. If you don't really understand what the system does, it's really hard to trust it. If you come across as something magical that's going to take over at some point and so on, which is really not the case, you won't be able to use it effectively. Worse, you won't be able to debug the model when something goes wrong because you have no sound understanding of what it does and how that it does it. So again, very, very, very important to understand the capabilities of regulations that are, that are really informed by these capabilities and limitations so that we don't have people who over rely on AI systems and something goes off like, oh, the AI told me to do so. And then when we ran investigation, it turned out that that was one of the use cases where actually the design of the system said, well, I wouldn't do that. There are many instances of this, right? So again, I really want to insist on this. When we ascribe capabilities to AI systems, I've been trained in very specific context, even with large language models and large data sets, they're good at some stuff. For instance, large models are really good at summarization. Mm -hmm. harder to have like effective chatbots in highly regulated environment, right? Because novelty, the novelty aspect of creating an answer, for instance, if you're doing, if you're using a, a version of ChatGPT for underwriting, well, this is a really, really challenging exercise because first you're liable for whatever output's going to be generated, even mm -hmm. using a vector database, you know, if you think about the architecture of that, right? You have your LLM, you have your vector database that you plug in to have you know, contextual data from, from your insurer that you are that is factor in or used to produce your response well assessing the relevance the quality of that response is really difficult it's really important to understand how that response was created for liability but also more for core performance if you really want to assess the performance you need to understand how it works so let's move away from the myth really really get clo as close as possible to the use case and build a regulation related to the genuine capabilities to the systems so that we use them wisely do you think uh, part of what makes AI sort of particularly hard to regulate or that people tend to think it's really hard to regulate and that, yeah, regulation can't keep up uh, is partly that um, most people, including the people doing the regulating, don't really know how it works. Like I'm a big um, fan of, or like my, my idea is that AI now is so, so, ubiquitous and everywhere that we should know as much about the way AI works as we know about like how a car works, right? If you own a car, you yeah. 
yeah. should be able to change a tire. I don't know. Like, yeah. um, the problem I, is the yeah. definitions, I think. Yeah. I think people yeah. don't understand still the definitions yeah, of AI. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a big problem. I think you touch upon a very important point. And I will even go further and say one of my top concerns when you think about, you know, um, our technological age is the, the um, very small general knowledge that most people have about science and technology. That's a real concern. It's not just that we have elected officials, most of them have backgrounds in law and social sciences. Nothing wrong about that, but no, uh, of many, of them, <laughs> many of few of them, at least in, in France, and I think it's true most, most of European countries, have backgrounds in sciences. Um, even the general public, I think, as a general knowledge or culture of science, which is very low, and that's a problem. Mm -hmm. Because science is everywhere and they interact with, you know, not only AI, but tomorrow with like, you know, uh, quantum computing and, you know, and so forth. So we need to, we need to have a basic understanding of really what's going on. I think beyond regulation, everyone should have a basic understanding of what the, the software does and what ChatGPT does, how it works really. Even as a user, I think it would be really useful. That's one thing. But I think it's not only because of lack of knowledge or complexity, it's also because of that cultural tendency or bias to uh, ascribe intelligence to the systems. And, and this, this runs much deeper. Again, the thinking that, you know, we're going to build intelligent machines and tomorrow we're going to take over, that narrative is so powerful that kind of distract us from, from, from that discussion. Yeah. So we should have a much more like, you know, uh, focused discussion about AI, AI systems, what they're doing, What's the current paradigm? What is the limitation of that current paradigm? I give one example with ChatGPT. Yes, it added voice now. Yes, that added uh, uh, sounds, but it still have like fundamental limitations for very, for, very, for very simple reason. It's not an embodied system interacting in the world, right? It's not a robot like interacting with the world and a lot of like knowledge is lost because of this. That's just one limitation. But from this, you can derive all sorts of implications. But going back to your point, more education for everyone, especially policymakers, I think. Not policymakers because they know what they're doing, talking about, but especially around AI. But for like elected officials in general, like, you know, decision makers about what AI can and cannot do, and then mm -hmm. appropriate regulation. But I'm just, um, I'm kind of conscious of the time. I think we should probably, yeah, start, start wrapping up. I don't know if you have any last thoughts you wanted to share on um, any of the work you're doing or what we've discussed today. Um, last thought is I will strongly encourage, um, not only women, but also minorities to get into, into the field. Mm -hmm. I think that AI represents massive transformation and here it's not overblown. Yes. AI is going to change the world and the best way to have an impact is being part of that change, uh, is to be in it, being one of the key actors shaping the technology. And this requires having an understanding of the technology. This requires having background in sciences, in technology, being genuinely interested in what AI can and cannot do. Uh, whatever, like it's your bag, whatever is your background, you can get in. There's a perception that AI is too complex or in background math or computer science. None of that is true. You know, I'm not a day-to-day -day, uh, computer science, uh, sorry, software engineer. But I'm working in AI and I'm having an impact. And that's the case for a lot of people. So please, come in. Don't be afraid, don't be impressed, don't be discouraged. Uh, now is the time. Now is the time, um, not only for yourself, uh, but for everyone you care about. 
you know you need to be part of that change i love that that's such a yeah that's, that's such a great a... closing message yeah, and I can say that um, the field definitely, even at the software engineer level, we need more um, more diversity and more people with, with different points of views, for sure. And we have a slowly growing community of uh, yeah, less less uh, represented groups. So thank you so much for, for joining us. It was super, super interesting. Um, super nice points. I love the... Yeah, I yeah, know. With lots of food for thought today. Thank you so much, Alfred. Thank you. And yeah, thank you everyone and we'll see you see you next, next time. time. Yeah.